Happy Palm Sunday. Hey, how about we use those palms this morning? All right, come on, let's put them together for the King of Kings. I think you can do better than that. I think he's done more for you than what we're responding right now. Oh, come on. When he came into Jerusalem on this day 2,000 years ago, they didn't sit on their butts. They didn't keep, come on, somebody. They said, Lord, Lord, tell them to be quiet. The religious spirit said, tell them to be quiet. Jesus said, if they don't shout, a rock will shout out. I ain't letting a rock. I ain't letting a rock. I ain't letting a rock steal my praise this morning. Come on. Hosanna. 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 Say, Pastor, you're a little bit too turned up. I don't know if you know what he did for me. That's just calm down, sir. This is church. We are a dignified people. Show me that in the Bible. Show me that. Because I can show you time after time and place after place where the people of God were so enamored with the presence of God or with the need of the experience of the presence of God that they became undignified. I believe part of the church's problem in America is that we've become too dignified. I believe that we've allowed ourselves to make the appearing and the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe who put on flesh and who died for our sins, we've allowed it to become commonplace. And as long as there's breath in my lungs and I have an opportunity to speak to one or one million, I will never allow the presence of God to become a commonplace occurrence in our life. And so as we celebrate this Palm Sunday, we have to remember that day. We see it in the Gospels. It's called the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus rode in on a donkey, and because people were so happy that he was there, because they, had, they knew he was the Messiah, but they had, they had preconceptions about him that didn't match up with their expectations for him, and so eventually they missed it. And the same voices that were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, literally, like a handful of days later, were shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas, give us the murderer. And so we can never allow that. We can't allow our expectations of Jesus when he... How, how many of you know Jesus has, has no responsibility to meet your expectations? And we have every responsibility to meet his. When you're king, you get to make plays like that. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus was entering Jerusalem, and it's called Palm Sunday. You see the palms on the, on the screen there the branches, and they shouted, Hosanna. And the, re the religious leaders, the religious spirit, the spirit that wants you to stay dignified and stay impotent and lonely and broken and ineffective in your life, that spirit demanded that Jesus told the people that were worshiping him to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they didn't praise me, the rocks would cry out. And I will not let a brick cry out on my behalf. So I welcome you to this Palm Sunday. I know some of you, you've been in church long enough. How many of you remember when you used to get the palm branches? Come on, somebody. Yeah. Yeah, you, 
The, 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 the old people waved them and the young people snapped their brothers and sisters with them. Go on, somebody. So for liability purposes, we don't have them today, but you know why you don't need them? Because you've got a palm here. You've got a palm here that you can wave, that you can put together, that you can open up and receive from him today. And that's my prayer as we dive into part two of our sermon series, He Is. But before we do that, I just there's a couple of things that I want to touch on this morning, a couple of... If you didn't get it in the first part, you just got it then, okay? Like... God's trying to get your attention. But there's a couple of people that I'd like to recognize before we dive in to the message this morning. Uh, first and foremost, as is a common practice for us here at Bridge City Church, not just at the North Braddock campus, but all four of our locations, when somebody faithfully, bravely steps into this process that we call next steps, which is how you can learn more about the church and learn more about yourself and how God has hardwired you to, to make an impact in the church and in the world. When somebody goes into that and you're like, what's, yeah. there's a step one, there's a step two, and then step three is the part where you get an opportunity to say, you know what, I want to be a member of Bridge City Church. I want to I wanna be, be a covenant, covenant agreement with this body of people to say, I'm a part of this body. And so when that happens, one of the things that we like to do is we like to recognize those people when it happens. And so this morning, I want to recognize uh, Jasmine over here. There she is. Jasmine and her daughter, January, who's back in BC Kids right now. And if you need a joke, if you need uplifted in your life, I need to introduce you to Miss January. Because if she can't put a smile on your face, we need to get the defibrillators out and make sure you're alive. Sweetest little girl I know. But Jasmine and January have become members of Bridge City Church North Braddock, and we're just so thankful for them. When people become members, one of the, two of the things that they, that they aim to do then is like, we have teams and connection groups, and so getting on a group and getting on a team and so uh, Jasmine has been checking out a couple of different connection groups, um, but she also has an interest to be a part of our, our outreach team that we have here at our campus. And so later on today, you're going to hear a little bit about missions and outreach. And so she's going to be connecting with Pastor Tom, our missions and outreach coordinator here, to get more involved with that. And so we're excited about that. And because she doesn't wait for someone to point her at the task, she just goes looking at it. Her and Jasmine were servants at our extravaganza that we had yesterday. So here's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were a part of the extravaganza in some serving capacity, you were here yesterday and you served in some way, or you donated candy, or you helped to pack that donated candy into eggs this past Wednesday, if that's you, would you just stand to your feet just real quick? I don't want to put you on the spot. Come on. Yeah. Come on. If you don't stand, I'll call you out because I know who's here. And we want to just thank you for being a part 
and for making yesterday such a great day. We had 133 kids, 12 years old and under, that came and found eggs in our playground adjacent to the building here. And so we had at least 250 total of people that were above 12. It was just an amazing day. So all of you guys that pitched in, prayed, thank you so much for making this a great place to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. So I want to thank you this morning. And you might be like, well, man, I, I didn't get a chance to be a part. I want to be a part. Well, I've got good news for you. Because there is still, there's always opportunities to get involved with helping people begin a relationship with God and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ here at Bridge City Church. That's how we advance the kingdom. And so if you didn't get a chance to, to be in extravaganza, or if, if you're like, extravaganza was great, I want to do the next thing. Here's what I want you to do. On the seats around you, and we're running out of them, which is a good thing, but you'll find two cards. Two cards. One is, one is an invitation for our Easter worship experiences next Sunday. That's right. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And since this is such a big deal, and we want to help people get connected with Jesus, we're not just having one, but two worship experiences. So we want to fill this room twice. And so we need your help. So we want you to take this and invite your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Actually, you know what? And we're going to hear about it a little bit. I want you to invite the people you don't like. Because look, Jesus has heard you complaining about them. And he's the only one that can fix them. So, if you, so Easter Sunday morning. And if he's like, a week, that's too long. I need to invite somebody sooner. Well, good news. Because this Friday, all four of our campuses are coming together here for two worship experiences on Good Friday at 5 p.m. and at 7 p.m. Because we're getting all the gang together and the doors will open at 4 p.m. because we're going to be having a, a, an Easter art exhibit. Last year we had one. It was phenomenal. It's being updated for this year. So, so you want to take these two things with you right now. I want you to wave them at me. Let me know you got them. Come on, fan them. You know, if it's too hot, you know what I'm saying? Just do a little do something like that. Whatever you need to do. And, and, and if people say, what are these things? Don't tell them it's an invite. And so you hand these to them. Say, what do you say? I got Two tickets to paradise. Come on, Eddie Money. Come on. Now I'm I'm being I'm being facetious, but but here, here there's there's truth to this because here's what I want you to remember. This is this is what we have to get about Easter. Because on Good Friday, almost two thousand years ago, Jesus, the perfect sinless Son of God, hung on a cross between two thieves. Two people that had an opportunity to have direct rapport with Jesus for a handful of hours uninterrupted. And one of them, one of them mocked him. But the other one, in his own limited way, recognized there was something special about Jesus. And he said this to Jesus. He said, he said, he said Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know what Jesus said? Surely today you will be with me paradise. You don't have to be a theological scholar. You just have to have some recognition of who Jesus is, and he'll let you in. And you know what? The chances of them hearing about Jesus out there 
are a lot less than the chances of them hearing about him in this auditorium. And so when you take these two invites, I want you to take them to people who need paradise in their life. People who are struggling to see life, struggling to see Jesus. Does God even care? Is God even real? I want you to say, look, I want you to come with me. Don't just say, come to it. Come with me. I'm saving you a seat. Friday, April 7th. Sunday, April 9th, 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. on the 7th, 9 a.m. or 10.45 a.m. on the 9th. I got two tickets for paradise for you. Amen? All right. He is. That's the title of the sermon series that we've been in uh, the last two weeks. This is week two. Pastor Rick was here, and he did such a great job of leading us and guiding us through who Jesus is. Because one of the trickiest things about inviting our family members, neighbors, friends, strangers, co-workers, is sometimes we're not fully aware of who he is. So we need to hear, okay, yep, so that we can feel confident in to who we're inviting people to meet. But we also want to have some information so when people who are wondering, who is this Jesus, we can give them good answers. And so last week, we saw a little part of who Jesus is. He is, he is the God that transforms life. He is the gracious God. He is, he is the perfect sacrifice, the sinless Lamb of God. He is the forgiving God. And so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at another passage of Scripture that I think is just so, so poignant. For, for, for many of you in this room who know Jesus and have known Jesus for a while, but definitely for people who really don't have a clear view of Jesus in their lives that need you, I, I, I can't stress this enough, you will be the only Jesus that most people who don't already know him see in their lives. I want you to grab a hold of that. Don't hope that someone else tells them when God has strategically positioned you in their lives at whatever moment and whatever sphere of influence for you to influence them for Christ. But the reality of it is, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 25 years or you've been walking with Jesus for 25 minutes or you've been like I used to be flipping the double middle fingers off at God because you didn't think God was, cared about you and wasn't in your, wherever you are, one of the trickiest things about knowing who Jesus is, is that when circumstances in our life begin to rise up, it becomes even more difficult to see him for who he is. How many of you in this room have struggled with seeing God when the storms of life hit? You're in good company. You're in good company. You know why? Because there was a time in the Gospels where the disciples were out on the, the, the Sea of Galilee by themselves without Jesus. He stayed on the shore on a mountain to pray. And during the middle of the night, they're rowing across the, the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes, and it's crazy. They can't see. I mean, because we're talking about first century. We're talking about 30 A.D. 
There's no street lights. And if the clouds block out the moon or the sun or whatever, you are not seeing. And Jesus began to walk out to them on the water, right? You've heard of Jesus walking on water. But because it was a storm and because there were circumstances surrounding them, the disciples who intimately knew Jesus better than most people on earth at that time, they struggled to understand that it was him because their circumstances halted them from seeing him clearly and they became afraid because they thought Jesus was a ghost. Your circumstances can cloud you to Jesus walking in your midst. And so this morning, my hope is to unpack a passage of Scripture that it will not only help reaffirm who he is to us, especially in times of of trial and circumstances and situations, but will also help us to go out to people that are just lost, who who don't even know anything about God, so that we can help them to see God in the midst of their circumstances. Because Jesus is the one that we need to change our lives. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that, like I said, is is very near and dear to me because it really brings this point home of, of how hard it is to see Jesus when circumstances are blocking our eyes. Because we see at the beginning of Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes out and he, he heals the servant of a centurion. Now, you've got to understand the culture in those days. Jesus was a Jew. He was of the Jewish people. And they had religious laws that restricted or limited how they interacted with non-Jewish people, which were called Gentiles. So if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. And so Jews weren't allowed to go into Gentiles' homes. They weren't really allowed to hang out or befriend Gentiles. And so Jesus is out in this Gentile centurion. He's an army commander. He he comes to Jesus because he has a servant that's very helpful to him, that he loves very much, who is sick. And he's heard about Jesus' healing power. So he comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can you help me out? Now, a typical Jew would have probably just been like, hey, man, sorry about your luck. But even the Jews who were with Jesus were like, hey, man, this dude's a good dude. He's helped us build synagogues. He's a good dude. You should help him. So Jesus helps this Gentile. And then in the middle of Luke 7, we see Jesus interacting with another Gentile. And not just a Gentile, but a Gentile woman. And not just a Gentile woman, but a Gentile widow. You want to talk about the trifecta of who a Jewish man doesn't interact with. And this Gentile widow, is he meets... Jesus meets her as she's coming out of her town called Nain, carrying, she's in the funeral procession of her son who has died. Now, this was a big deal. This was a big deal in the ancient world because a woman had no legal right to really uh, take care of herself. So she needed to have a husband. And then when she got married, she needed to have as many kids, preferably male children as she could, because it was the man's responsibility to take care of the ladies, just like it is today. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to crush independent ladies, but, but I'm trying to talk to the guys and, and, and let you hear if you got ears to hear today. So she has no husband. She's a widow. And her son, her only son, the only other, not just her baby boy, but her only other source of provision and care in the world is laying on a, on a stretcher, going outside, and Jesus meets her. 
You talk about circumstances that can make it difficult to see Jesus. Try burying your baby boy. And Jesus touches this dead boy, which, again, Jews couldn't touch dead animals. That would make you ceremonially unclean. But see, the great thing about Jesus is that when Jesus would touch unclean people or unclean things, see, other people, normal people, if you touched that unclean thing or unclean person, their uncleanness would transmit to you. But when Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, the pure and perfect, spinless, spotless Lamb of God, touches the unclean, that uncleanness doesn't get on him, but his cleanness gets on them and invades them and invigorates them and brings life just like it did to that dead boy. He sat up, he woke up, he said, Mama. I, gu- I mean, that's not in the text, but I guarantee you the first thing he said was Mama. You know how I know that? Because I bet you the last thing he said as he was feeling life leave his body was Mama. Jesus didn't just restore her babe. He restored her ability to survive back. But she's a Gentile. He's dealing with Gentile centurions. He's dealing with Gentile widows touching dead bodies. And then the part we're going to see here that we're going to read here in a minute, we then see John the Baptist. And you heard a little bit about John the Baptist last week if you were here. And if you weren't here, there's good news. You can go to bridgecitypgh.com. You can click on the messages tab, and you can listen to any old message you want. And I'd encourage you, Pastor Rick crushed it last week. So go and, and, and listen to that. But in that, we, we, we learn about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had a very special role in the kingdom of God at this time. So John the Baptist was the son of the cousin of Jesus' mama Mary. Are you tracking with me? If you're from the hood, you should be able to track this real easy. All right? You don't need no ancestry dog. Oh, that's my cousin Tito. Yeah, you know, we'd be third cousins on my granddaddy's mama's side, you know, about a lady that he married that he had a baby with, but it was my cousin. You, you feel me. You follow with me. But Jesus is the, is the cousin of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was born supernaturally to Elizabeth, who was an older lady at the time, who hadn't had any kids, because John the Baptist had the distinct privilege and honor. He had the foreordained calling to be what the Bible calls the forerunner for the Messiah. So the Messiah is the anointed one. It's Hebrew for the anointed one, and that's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. In Greek, the word isn't Messiah, it's Christ. So Christ ain't his last name, it's his title. And so John the Baptist, from the moment he was conceived, had one job, and that was to point people to Jesus. To the point when Mary, who's pregnant, walks in with baby Jesus in her belly to Elizabeth's house, John the Baptist, who's in Elizabeth's belly, senses the nearness of Jesus, and the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and leapt in his mama's womb. So if there was one person on planet Earth other than Mama Mary who knew who Jesus was, it was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. But as we're about to see, John the Baptist's circumstances, because he's in jail right now, John the Baptist's circumstances has caused him to question who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but, but I'd be surprised if there weren't at least a few people in this room right now whose circumstances, even though you knew Jesus, you felt his presence during worship, you've heard him speak to you, you you've, just, you've seen the change in your life, but a circumstance comes and you wonder if he's really who he says he is. Well, if you do, you're in good company because John the Baptist is in that situation. And so we see in Luke chapter 7, 
starting at verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. Because remember, John is sitting in jail. Anybody that's ever been in jail, you're wondering about what everybody else who's not in jail is doing, especially if you got a significant other. What's she out there doing? Who's she with? Right? What are my kids doing? What is life? So, so John the Baptist is locked up, and he's hearing that Jesus is out helping all these Gentiles who he's not supposed to help. And here's John the Baptist like, yo, cuz, I'm your cousin. I'm your dude, but I'm sitting, you're, here, you're raising dead Gentiles, but I got to sit here. Nobody's ever talked to God like that, I know. It's just me. So he's hearing about all of these things that Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him. Now listen to the question that John asks. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Um, bro, you know who the Messiah is. And so we see that John's circumstances are messing up his ability to see who Jesus is. And that title for Messiah, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, in, in the scripture, God was prophesying little tidbits about what this Messiah would look like. Because he wasn't ever going to tell you who the Messiah was, but he gave you more than enough information to see that this is the Messiah. Because here's the thing. If he tells you exactly who he is, you don't need faith to believe it. So there were some hallmarks of the Messiah that we're about to see here that John and everybody else on planet Earth who knew the Old Testament should have known. The Messiah was going to help blind people see. He was going to help deaf people hear. He was going to help the lame to walk. He was going to help the dead raise to life. He was going to preach the good news to the poor. This was who the Messiah was. And every one of those things, even though they're physical realities that Jesus did, they're all spiritually symbolic, pointing to things, not just about blind people. Look, can I just say this, and hopefully it doesn't offend you? God doesn't really care as much about your physical condition as he cares about your spiritual one. Because look, he can heal your eyes from blindness to seeing, but if you don't have spiritual eyes to see the truth, you're still going to go to hell with two good eyes. He can heal your deaf ears so that you can hear the sound of your children saying your name. But if you do not hear the word of God that causes your heart to come into conviction and say, what must I do to be saved? Then you will still go to hell with two perfectly good ears. And the Bible says that in hell, all you'll hear is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if we're ever on the phone together, please don't eat food while we're on the phone. Because there is nothing worse to me than mouth noises. And I'm the worst. Like, my kids, they're like, Dad, why? I can hear you chewing in the other room. But you want weeping and forever. That's, that sounds like hell, doesn't it? Amen. Praise God. Glory to God. And so all of these physical things that Jesus did were really to point people to spiritual realities. You need spiritual eyes to see. You need ears to hear. You need to be able to walk into the calling and purpose that I have for your life. Are you with me this morning? And so John the Baptist, who knows he's the Messiah, is so beat down in his circumstances that he has to send people to say, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? And that's just how powerfully our circumstances can affect our ability to see God. 
And I want you for a moment to consider. You probably know God. Maybe be not as good as John the Baptist from a calling perspective and knowing him from from the time you were in your mother's womb, but you know him better than John the Baptist in the sense that, that John the Baptist never had the spirit of Christ living inside of him. And if you can struggle to see God because of your circumstances, how much more does the person, the people that are in your life that don't know God, how much more do they struggle to see him because of their circumstances? Because this isn't just about helping you to see Jesus more clearly. It's really a, 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 a clarion call for us to get up and go and help people who don't know him to see him better. And so we see John sending these people out. And so in verse 20, John's two disciples, they find Jesus and they said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we expect someone else? I want you to watch this because... Jesus, and some of you have probably been frustrated by this from him in your life. How many of you ask Jesus a very clear and simple question, and you do not get a very clear and simple answer if you get an answer at all? Okay, I'm in good company. So look, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? Verse 21, at that time, Jesus cured Many people are diseases. And I want you to picture this right now. Disciples come up. Hey, uh, Jesus, your cousin, your forerunner, John the Baptist, yeah, remember him? Camel hair, eating locusts out in the wood. Good dude. He baptized you, the Holy Spirit came on you. Remember that? Yeah. He's in jail. And he really wants us to ask you, are you the Messiah? Now, I want you to picture this because all of us, when we're the disciples, we want Jesus to turn and say, yes, my child, here's some money. Or whatever it is you want. Watch what Jesus does. This is what he does. They ask him that question, Jesus. Be healed. Be healed. Now, they could very easily interpret that as a dismissal, right? Because Jesus, at that time, he turned and started curing people. And they're like, no, no, no. Jesus, I don't think you heard me. I'm the only one that's ever said that to him, right? I don't think you heard me. I'm trying to ask you a question, and you're helping all these other people. Some of you are, oh, I should have been helping those people. But see, Jesus, when we talk about who Jesus is, Jesus demonstrates to us who he is. Because you know why? And you've all said this, you've all heard it. I can show you better than I can tell you. At that time, he did what the Messiah would do. He cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples. See, sometimes the delay in your response from God is not because he doesn't care or didn't hear you, but because he's doing something more important, and if you'll just wait a minute, he'll talk to you. That's for free, not in the notes. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and what you have heard. Because here's something that we need to understand about God, and this, this isn't in the notes either, but I think you have to get it. Jesus is evidentiary and experiential. 
He's evidentiary and he's experiential. What does that mean? Jesus will show you better than you can tell you. There is evidence that you can see what Jesus is doing. And if you know Jesus, I'd be surprised if you haven't experienced him in some way, shape, or form. See, and that is important. That is so important because we're not inviting people to religious dogma. We're inviting people to a relationship with God. And he will demonstrate himself through evidences and experiences that will transcend any logical or reasonable argument that you have. Remember last week, they, they were talking to the guy born blind that Jesus healed. They were like, is he a prophet? Is he? He's like, look, I don't know who he is. All I know is I was once blind, but now I see. I was once strung out on dope, but now I'm healed. I was once broke, but now I'm prospering. I was once lonely, but now I'm in a family. Maybe you don't have anything to get excited about, but that was me here in this neighborhood wanting to die, wanting to take my own life if I couldn't get someone else to take it from me. But Jesus came and he said, I will take your life, but I'll give you mine instead. And we need to tell people. I don't know. I just know he changed my life. He changed my life. Go back and tell John what you have seen and heard. And look at this. Remember, because the Messiah isn't just who he is. It's what he does. The blind see. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is being preached to the poor. And this is such an important part of this passage. And blessed is he who does not fall away because of me. Some translations say, blessed is he who is not offended by me. The Greek word for offended or fall away, it's the Greek word scandalizo, which is where we get our English word scandalous. And there are times in our lives when we feel like the way God is treating us or not moving on our behalf is scandalous. And we think, God, where are you? And God says, blessed are you who don't feel scandalous because you're not getting it your way because you're trusting me for a better way. So why do people need an invitation to Jesus? A couple of three things and I'm out of your way. Because he restores. Because he redeems. Because he raises dead things to life. Why do we need to take these two tickets to paradise and hand them to people in the hopes that they might show up here because maybe we don't feel comfortable sharing our experience with God yet? Or we don't feel comfortable with communicating who he is yet, right? It's okay to feel that way now, but it's not okay to stay that way. But you can take these and say, because you know what? He redeems, he restores, and he raises things from the dead. So I want to look at a couple of these things. The first thing, he restores. It says, the blind see, the lame walk, and the deaf hear. And remember I said, Jesus physically did these things, but all of these things had spiritual significance. They pointed to realities that he wanted to transcend beyond the natural. And so we see that Jesus gives us vision and direction for our lives. Because what's the point of having two good eyes if you can't see a vision for what's ahead or where to go or what to do? What's the point of having ears that can hear if you don't know 
you don't have someone giving you instruction or direction on how to get where your vision is showing you. So we see that Jesus, this is why we invite people, because Jesus will give them vision and direction for their lives. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, a very, a very uh, well-known passage of Scripture. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you. See, some of us, it's not because God doesn't have a good plan, it's because we're doing our plan and not his. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. See, there's plenty of other things that can give you a, a plan, but none of them but God can promise you to deliver you from harm and promise to give you hope and promise to give you a future. Only God can do that. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 through 21. Again, the Lord speaking through the prophet um, Isaiah. And it says, and though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. How many of you have ever felt like you've literally been eating adversity and drinking suffering? He said, even though the Lord gives it to you, well, I thought you're good. I thought, he, look, 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 sometimes you got to have some adversity and some suffering in your life so that you can see, first and foremost, how good he is, and sometimes so you can see how bad your plan and your ways are. God will let you eat the harvest that you plant. But even though the Lord gives this to you, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. The word teacher there is capitalized because he ain't talking about Miss Man from third grade at Schaefer Elementary. Talking about himself, talking about Jesus. But your eyes shall see your teacher. Listen, ears hearing, eyes seeing. It's not just so that you can see and hear naturally so that you can see and hear spiritually and walk into the vision and future and hope that God has for your life because it's better than anything you can plan for yourself. Jesus will show us the path and speak to us to lead us and guide us. But see, there's another aspect of this restoration that we see. And it's in this idea of the lame getting healed and, and, and Jesus gets us unstuck. How many of you felt stuck before you met Jesus? If I could put both feet up, I would, but that would be physically impossible, but I believe in miracles. I just will not try it in front of you. The word for lame there literally means halted. Now, lame, it's not like, oh, that, that song was so lame. No, it's not that. Lame means you physically can't move or walk. Usually it's talking about people who are paralyzed or, or are unable to move in the way that they were designed to move. Jesus wants to get you unstuck in your life because there's a way you're designed to move in the spirit that God wants to do, but until he touches you, it can't happen. And so Jesus wants to restore us he wants to restore our vision, restore our direction, and restore our forward momentum because he wants us mobile, agile, and hostile against the world that is hostile against us, not in the sense where we're beating them up, but understanding we were built to push back with the goodness of God. He tells John the Baptist, actually, fun fact, Matthew chapter 11, we see this same interaction with John's disciples while John's in jail and after his disciples leave Jesus says this for the kingdom of heaven suffers violence but the violent take it by force he didn't call you to some soft thing and you need to be able to move and be unstuck in your life so that you can carry out the plans and purposes of God for your life 
The next thing we see is this. He redeems. The lepers are cleansed. Now, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term for a variety of infectious skin diseases. Now, the most notable of these diseases is the one that we see most in the scriptures. And this is, this is the form of leprosy that caused your skin to rot and fester on your body until pieces of your body began to fall off and you die. Nasty. Now, apart from this being a debilitating disease, something that, that just made your life horrible, it was also a huge social stigma. Because people with leprosy were not allowed in general public. You just couldn't go out to the store and go out and about, go, you know, shoot some hoops at Dave and Buster's with your homies. Couldn't go to, you couldn't do any of these things because leprosy, one, they, they believed that this disease was highly contagious. Leprosy also caused you to smell horribly and look awful. You're literally a rotting corpse that's alive. So you looked real bad and you smelled real funky. But the most stigmatizing thing that leprosy had is that in the Jewish religion, religious system, leprosy made the person with leprosy and anything or anyone that they touched ceremonially unclean. It means you couldn't worship God. You had to go sit outside of the city for, for a week or however long it was. And so when lepers... If they were around people, I want you to get this. They literally had to move as far away from people as they could, and they had to shout out everywhere they go, unclean. Unclean! Unclean! I mean, you're already rotting. You can smell how bad you can smell. And when you can smell how bad you can smell, you smell really bad because you're the last person that usually smells yourself. You can feel your body wasting away, the, the, the sores opening and pussing, flies landing on you and putting maggots in your skin because you're too weak from fighting the disease to swipe the flies away like those little starving kids in the UNICEF videos. And on top of all of that, you have to shout at the top of your voice anytime a human being is within earshot unclean. Now, we may not have lepers today, but I can think of a few people that have a stigma. I got a list. I'm not going to say them for the sake of time. But anybody that's ever been an addict, you don't have to shout unclean, but everybody knows you got something. Stay away from me. The mentally ill, right? I love you, but you got to stay away because I don't want to catch what you got. You're funky. Get away from me. I'm too holy to be by someone like you. You see, Jesus heals lepers. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus, a leper comes up to him and he says to Jesus, he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't question his ability. He doesn't say, if you can, you can make me clean. He knows he can make him clean. He, people just want to know if God's willing. There are people out there who haven't put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ as the forgiver of their past and their leader to their future yet. And they're not questioning whether or not God is able. They're questioning whether or not he's willing. 
And he said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And you know what Jesus did? Because it's amazing. He could have just spoken, be healed. And that man would have been cleansed. But the Bible says Jesus touched him. Because remember, your uncleanness can't infect him. But if you will let him touch you, his cleanness will infect you. But the thing I love about Jesus touching him is because our English word, it just says touch. So we picture like what we do at the altar. Shataraba. Touch you on the shoulder. But it's the Greek word, haptomai. And it literally means to hug. Jesus took this man who for however long he's had leprosy, not only hasn't been around people, but has not felt touch. Ask any sociologist or psychologist or physician how important touch is to human beings, especially children. Imagine going your life and not having someone hug you, high-five you, put their hand around your back when you're going through hell on earth, and Jesus hugged him because he redeems. But see, here's the thing. He didn't just cleanse this man of leprosy. You know what he did? He redeemed him to healthy community. Because now he can go to connection group. Now he could go to temple. Now he could go to the market. Now he could go back to his family's house and have a dinner. Because Jesus restores. Jesus redeems. And Jesus raises dead things to life. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. We know that Jesus raises the dead. Next week, we're going to celebrate the reality he rose from the dead. But Jesus doesn't just stop at raising dead people, which he can and will and is still doing today. But Jesus raises dead purpose. He raises dead plans. He raises dead hopes. He raises dreams that have just lost their will to live. He raises dead marriages. He raises dead relationships. He raises dead families and he raises dead finances. Jesus brings dead things to life. And I don't know what's dead inside your heart or dead inside your mind or dead inside your wallet or dead inside your soul or dead inside your life. But I'm here to tell you today that the God I serve, the one who raised me from death to life, he can raise that dead thing to life inside of you too. And that's why we're inviting people this Easter to come. You guys can begin to start playing. I'm going to land this plane. The great fiery minister of the gospel, a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. One thing that he said, you heard it last week, but a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. What's that mean? You can line up all the scientists on planet Earth, all, all the psychologists that I went to see, the nurses and social workers that were on the psych wards that I were in because I tried to kill myself, 
You can line up every recovery support specialist, every addictions counselor. You can line up every physician, every, every, every psychologist, every psychiatrist. You can line them all up, and they can tell you how all of these things, well, this is this, and this is that. But you put them in front of me. Bring your arguments, because I know this. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, but now I live. I once was dirty, but now I'm clean. A man with an experience is not at the mercy of his of a man with an argument. You can say, look, man, all I know is that, look, there are people in this room right now that can confirm to you everything I said about myself and tell you the gory details. That's why I love that I get to pastor in the place where the devil tried to take me out because my life is a living testimony that if he did it for me, he can do it for you. He'll do it again. He'll do it again. I love to be in North Braddock, Pennsylvania because my God, he's not just the God of yesterday. He's not the God of tomorrow. He's the same God. And if you're here today and you need that God to move in your life, I want you to stand with me to your feet. I want you to get up and say, you know what? It might not be for me, but I got a cousin. And he's in jail, just like John the Baptist. I got an auntie. I got a nephew. I got a son. I got a daughter. I got a significant other. They need to be cleansed. They need vision. They need direction. They need something. And God, I know you did it for me. So I'm declaring today that you're the same God who will do it again. Come on, somebody. Let's give him some praise.